Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, Zach Twomley here. Before we begin, I would like to say a word of thanks for your guys' support over the last few weeks. I'm fully aware that many of you were disappointed when you heard I was doing this project, so I'm really glad to hear that so many of you are now enjoying this trip through history you wouldn't normally hear. Your emails, general messages of support, and donations are all seriously appreciated during this quite stressful time in my life, more of which I'll inform you of in time, so don't worry. But trust me when I say that the story of Britain Goes to War only gets more and more interesting as we go on. Another thing I'd like to mention is that soon When Diplomacy Fails will be moving house from liberated syndication to ACAST, for reasons which will soon become clear, and have a lot to do with the closely knit network of history podcasters banding together that I've mentioned before. You shouldn't notice any changes on our part in When Diplomacy Fails, because I'm told that the transition will be seamless, but just in case something should happen, then that's why it did. Expect to hear from our new network soon, and sorry for the delay. Finally, thanks to Seamus from Wicklow for curing my ignorance. Lord Derby, as I've been pronouncing it, is actually Lord Darby, and we'll be referring to him as such from now on, just so you know. Thanks again, Seamus, for always being on hand for important corrections like that. We'll be seeing a lot more from a different sort of Lord Darby in the episodes to come, spoiler alert, so it's important that you corrected me before I made more of an ass of myself. Without further ado then, let's get to the episode at hand. Thanks again for listening, history friends, and as a blast from the past, allow me to perform the old-style introduction for you. I will now take you to the year 1865. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 7. With the death of Lord Palmerston in October 1865, only a couple of months after leading the Liberal Party to a great electoral success in the summer, that party seemed to be on the verge of a crisis. 
It had been mostly thanks to the popularity of Lord Palmerston that the election had been so successfully carried through. It would be the last in history that a party would gain more seats from after having already been in office for so long beforehand. And it had been an immensely eventful and stressful time in office. To some, like William Gladstone, pegged as the heir to the Liberal Party throne, now that the veteran John Russell had assumed the premiership, the idea of another term in office sounded too much like yet another marathon. The previous Palmerston ministry had lasted from 1859 to 65, and during its tenure wars had consumed Europe, with Italy and Germany beginning their wars of unification under the cloak of incredible statesmen and inspirational ideas. The United States, on the other hand, were still only beginning to hammer out their peace after years of ruinous war. At the same time, the Liberal Party had sought to reform and advance the Liberal cause at home, with varying degrees of success. As Richard Shannon in his book, Gladstone, 1869-1898, explains though, Gladstone's major wish following this mostly successful ministry was not to get the chance to achieve even greater successes, but to have a well-deserved rest. Quote, Gladstone was surprised and disappointed by Palmerston's healthy majority in the 1865 general election. Gladstone had been in hopes of a modest and short-lived conservative interval, somewhat perhaps on the lines of the 1858-59 Lord Derby ministry. He had now been for six years in strenuous office and badly felt the need of a recuperative break. He was quite sure that the political health of the Liberal Party would greatly benefit from a spell in opposition. He was, in 1865 in fact, far from having a view of what his cause, of what his followers precisely consisted. He was far from trusting himself, especially in his new role as leader of the Liberals in the House of Commons. He had but a tentative sense of the direction which a general advance would take. End quote. Gladstone's concerns reflect the reality on the ground. These were men at the end of the day, after all, not machines. Despite his impressive political career to date, and after the date of 1865, it is interesting to note here the worry Gladstone felt. Perhaps he genuinely believed that the Liberal Party would do better attempting to react to any mistakes that the Conservatives made, rather than attempt to lead the way. Regardless of Gladstone's concerns, what faced Lord Russell's premiership now was the need to reform. With Palmerston's death, John Russell was finally able to remove himself from the former shadow and implement what he believed was an essential piece of legislation for the sake of Britain's democratic future. Another reform bill aimed at increasing the number of voters. However, enfranchising further segments of the population to the extent that the vote would in some cases trickle down to even the working classes proved too much for some in the Liberal Party itself. Concerns abounded, particularly in the put-out Conservative Party, which now languished, apparently hopelessly in opposition, after another heavy electoral defeat, that the Liberal Party's contingent parts would now break apart without the force of Palmerston's personality to hold it together. Both Lord Derby and his significant colleague Benjamin Disraeli understood that the sole hope for the Conservatives within the Liberal-dominated House of Commons revolved around their ability to sow dissension and capitalise upon it within the Liberal ranks. Their greatest chance to do so came with the insistence of John Russell to push through electoral reform in a new bill. This new bill would extend the vote to yet more workers and individuals with fewer land requirements. Despite the Liberal manifesto of Russell's party, 
he would have appreciated that not all of his colleagues saw eye to eye with him on the issue of electoral reform. It's an issue we'll be confronted with later on. The Liberal Party was united over free trade and a loose conglomeration of other issues, but these other issues varied from person to person, and there was a wide chasm of difference between the opinions of radicals on the political left and the opinions of liberal imperialists on the right, both of whom occupied the same party. Not even John Russell's successor as Foreign Secretary, the Earl of Clarendon, was entirely confident in the continuation of Russell's ministry. Following the death of Lord Palmerston, he was recorded to have said of the Liberal Party that it seemed destined to become a great bundle of sticks which are now unloosened, with no one to tie them up. But it was Morris Cowling, a British historian writing in the 1960s, who I feel put it best in his book that examined the troublesome reform bill. In this book, entitled 1867, Disraeli, Gladstone and Revolution, The Passing of the Second Reform Bill, Cowling wrote, quote, It seemed possible, to say the least, that the alliance of radicals, Whigs, squires, lawyers and businessmen, bereft of its anchor and captain, might disintegrate more easily, even, than Peel's party in 1846. Nor was there merely a vague feeling that the bundle of sticks might break up. It was obvious what would break it up, and in which direction the sticks would fly. In Palmerston's cabinet, opposition to electoral reform had been successful. Opposition to reform did not mean opposing it outright, it meant surrounding with the provision that nothing should be done hastily. End quote. Just as it had proved so problematic for Sir Robert Peel in the 1840s, reform would prove a contentious issue for Russell and Gladstone now. The problem was, as Cowling went on to explain, Gladstone was rumoured to be in favour of acting hastily. The radical MP John Bright, who favoured extensive electoral reform and was a firebrand orator in the Commons, was despised by many of his colleagues because of the changes he wished to bring about. The reforms he proposed were seen as almost revolutionary, incendiary even, and Gladstone, although he certainly respected the man's opinion, would not even be seen to collude with him openly because of it. Yet, this did not stop the rumour mill from churning out incredible stories, such as tales about Gladstone's intentions to ally himself with the most extreme radicals and push for Prime Minister, as John Bright spurred him on and took a senior position in Cabinet himself. In a few speeches, one most notably in Liverpool in April 1866, Gladstone seemed to increase the temperature more than usual by referring to the downtrodden classes and invoking images of voiceless masses which greatly intimidated and worried his colleagues. When he returned to Parliament as though nothing had happened a few weeks later, his colleagues were both relieved and puzzled. Some insisted he had momentarily come under the spell of John Bright, only to subsequently rein himself in, while others supposed he had allowed his passions to get the better of him. One thing was certain, as leader of the Liberals in the House of Commons and Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gladstone's opinion and action were crucial if John Russell wished to act himself. Yet controversy surrounded the idea of moving too fast in 1866, just as it had when Palmerston had been alive and well. At the same time, Gladstone's importance to British politics should not obscure the fact that the Liberal Party was new. It was a new phenomenon with new alliances and new commitments, but one of these had not been electoral reform. When Palmerston had helped establish the party in 1859, it had not been one of his chief goals either. 
Therefore, though it may sound somewhat illiberal for Gladstone's colleagues to oppose electoral reform, they would have done so firm in the knowledge that they were upholding the principles of the party, and that Palmerston's ghost would have approved. As Gladstone continued to push for a John Russell's team, though, a schism began to emerge. One of its most important driving forces was the Liberal MP, Robert Lowe. Robert Lowe was foremost in the Liberal Party for having travelled to Australia and established a great number of important companies, experience which he used to later draw up and push through critical bills in Parliament aimed at codifying how companies would be founded. Because he enshrined these terms in British law in 1856, Robert Lowe has been referred to as the father of modern company law. His efforts in that field brought Britain into the entrepreneurial world of the later 19th century and proved far more important economically than it is really given credit for. The reason why Lowe has been somewhat swept under the rug is probably because of his slightly awkward stance on enfranchisement. Lowe's experience in having lived in Australia, where social mobility was slow in that young society and reform even slower, caused him to balk at the rapidity with which Russell and Gladstone seemed to be forcing through reform at home. Were Palmerston alive, Lowe believed, he never would have stood for it. Lowe, it is important to emphasise, was not the only Liberal MP to feel so opposed to the reforms. The great fears that many statesmen held of the ability of the poorer classes to behave rationally and sensibly when it came to voting, and therefore not steer the country towards a political disaster, accidentally or on purpose, as some suggested they would also do, were genuine ones. But we must also remember the more obvious concerns which men like Robert Lowe had. Did they fear that by changing the voting rights and allotting average citizens the same stake in democracy as them, that they and their aristocratic livelihoods would be threatened, or at least would be forced to change? Absolutely. The misconceptions revolving around reform and the granting of votes to the working classes may seem laughable to us, but you have to understand that reform was not a necessary or natural progression to many in British politics at the time. Just because we know reform bills have passed, and just because we understand that the course of voting rights gradually increased, doesn't mean that the men on the ground at the time appreciated that, eventually, all men would get the vote. For centuries, it had been a certain way. For centuries, the landed gentry, the earls, the lords, the viscounts, had held the most sway. Now all of a sudden, reforms were emerging every other year to upend the apple cart. For some of these men, even those that claimed to uphold liberal principles, this was too much too fast, while to others still it was too much full stop. What Robert Lowe essentially did was torpedo the reform bill which Gladstone first tried to introduce to Parliament in March 1866. He did this by associating himself with 40 or so like-minded liberal MPs opposed to electoral reform, and thus, all of a sudden, he held a critical portion of opinion hostage from Gladstone within the House of Commons. This group could claim that they were not being disloyal to their liberal roots, but that they were merely continuing on with the principles of the previous Palmerston government, which had dismissed John Russell's proposals for reform in 1860, while the latter was Foreign Secretary and Palmerston as Prime Minister had the power to put an end to such ideas. Even though Palmerston was no longer present, his legacy remained, and Gladstone also knew he could expect the Conservatives to a man to vote against him, and thus alongside these liberal turncoats, who were beginning to call themselves 
Abdullamites, a biblical reference to the cave of Abdullam, in which David and a group of his allies had hid from Saul. You can see the parallels they were attempting to draw here. Religious undertones aside, Abdullamites believed that their freedom of opinion and positions were at stake, and that to hold fast to their own principles they needed to huddle together. The elasticity of the Liberal Manifesto would prove stretchy enough to welcome most of them back into the fold a few years after the episode, but for over a year they held a level of influence disproportionate to their size, and everyone knew it, including Benjamin Disraeli. Disraeli was determined not to rest once a chink in the Liberal armour exposed itself. Egging on the Abdullamites, he sought as an end goal to create a conservative Abdullamite coalition but would settle in the short term for a forced collapse of the Liberal majority in the Commons, which, within a few weeks, had been made brittle in its fragility. Since a group of 40 opponents to reform, as well as a number of don't-knows, influenced by them, had to be counted out, Gladstone could see his Liberal majority within the Commons fading away. With John Russell and a number of cabinet ministers in the House of Lords, Gladstone was mostly left to face the revolt against the party alone, at least in the House of Commons. Richard Shannon notes that at this point, Disraeli discerned how vulnerable his nemesis was, and he changed his tune from reluctant compromise in the face of overwhelming odds to outright opposition, flaming rhetoric and using every chance he could to inflict mortal wounds on Gladstone's hold over his own colleagues. Gladstone would not go down easily or quietly. In mid-April, he endured Disraeli's attacks on the American spirit of the Reform Bill, as well as Disraeli's awkward revelations that Disraeli had once passionately opposed the first reform bill of 1832 as a young lad, while Robert Lowe's continued attacks on Gladstone must also have been massively demoralising at the same time. It is at this point in his diaries that Gladstone comes to think of himself as receiving the power from on high to continue to challenge his adversaries. On the 22nd of April, in a two and a half hour speech, He ripped Disraeli to shreds by pointing out how ridiculous it was to contend that by adding about 400,000 new voters to the mix, that he was suddenly becoming American or un-English. He lambasted Robert Lowe for his treachery and mocked the pedestals on which those of his allies stood. He vehemently denied that he had become a disciple of John Bright, and he also defended the speech he had made in Liverpool earlier in that year. To Disraeli's assertions that Gladstone had once been dead set against reform, Gladstone pointed out the simple fact that men change as they age, he said when talking directly at Disraeli. I grant my youthful and imaginative mind were impressed with the same idle and futile fears which still bewilder and distract the mature mind of the right honourable gentleman. Despite Gladstone's oratorical feats, though, he had lost control of the House of Commons by June 1866. Many of his Liberal colleagues had proposed amendments to the Reform Bill to make it more palatable to the Abdullamites and perhaps make them come back, but Gladstone refused to bend on any issue, opening the way for further dissension and accusations from the opposition benches that Gladstone's inflexibility was creating a crisis. Parliament simply did not seem ready for the reforms Gladstone proposed, and as more liberals began to slide meekly towards the Abdullamite camp, Disraeli became even... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In better position to coordinate his attacks. In mid-June, the reform bill was finally put to a vote, when it was only just defeated at 304 votes for and 315 against. Gladstone noted gloomily that, with the cheering of the adversary, there was shouting, violent, flourished hats and other manifestations which I think most novel and inappropriate. Over the following days, only a rump of the most defiant ministers stuck to John Russell, who himself was enraged at what the Abdulmites had done to his so yearned-for second ministry. His first had occurred from 1846 to 52. Eventually, the decision was taken by most to resign, something Gladstone later regretted doing, but which, at the time, he had little choice in, considering the fragmented nature of the party. In late June 1866, he announced to the Commons that the government would resign as a whole, and in spite of the hysterical protests of Queen Victoria, it was made so. Disraeli, it seemed, would finally have his chance to shine in an empowered coalition made up of his rival's former colleagues or so he thought. Following the ejection of the now divided Liberals from power, the Conservatives oversaw the creation of a third minority government under Lord Derby, which depended on Liberal divisions, and which would once again host Disraeli as its Chancellor of the Exchequer. Disraeli, as leader of the Conservatives in the House of Commons, hoped to persuade the dissident Abdullamites to join him in a coalition. But when this proved impossible, owing to many of that faction's dislike of him and their belief that they would hold greater power in opposition, he hoped nonetheless for a loose alliance which would still limit liberal influence in Parliament. What Disraeli seemed not to have counted for was the very real storm which debate over electoral reform had caused throughout the country. Demonstrations made by the working classes across the land, in demand of the vote, had scared the living daylights out of the government and within a few days of taking office, Lord Derby's government was suddenly in the position of having to bring the same bill before the House of Commons again. 
This time, however, thanks to the very real fears that the lower classes were on the verge of overturning the government, with some going so far as to insist that these workers would form an alliance with radicals and launch a revolution, new elements were injected into the bill for the sole purpose of placating these same individuals. How had this ironic seesaw of reform come about? Let's investigate. The Reform League, a movement established in 1865 to agitate for electoral reform and grant the working man a voice, had been allowed to grow and nourish itself on the body of discontent felt by the working classes, who were mostly represented in the Commons by the so-called radicals of the Liberal Party. With the apparent success of the Gladstone-Russell Electoral Bill inbound, the notoriety of the League only grew, and by early 1866 it was organising rallies in support of the government. When the reform bill collapsed, and the liberal government collapsed with it though, a new strategy was devised which aimed at holding mass rallies in public places, where anyone could attend and hear the speeches of great orators and reformers. Not even Gladstone was crazy enough to attend, though John Bright was one of its best known speakers, which should show how the League was regarded by many segments of the political elite. As it grew more radical with news of the failure to reform though, its demonstrations became more intimidating. In June 1866, just as the Liberal government was collapsing, in Hyde Park and Trafalgar Square, 150,000 people attended the outdoor meetings, with the military even being called in to placate them, but proving unable to act in the end. The Reform League capitalised upon the anger that working classes felt towards the stonewalling Conservative Party, and it promptly expanded its operations throughout the country. Its leaders insisted on a party of no violence to capitalise on the sympathy of some middle-class citizens who themselves had formed the Reform Union, a grouping similar to the Reform League but composed of far less radical individuals and from very different backgrounds. The ensuing partnership between the Reform League and Reform Union proved a boom to the cause of electoral reform, and in February 1867, when the attempts of the Conservative Party to pacified the agitators with limited reforms were rejected out of hand, another march grander than all of the others was organised, with members from virtually all trade unions and reform organisations also taking part. By the end of March 1867, the League had sent letters to Disraeli as well as Gladstone. The former was gripped by the difficulties of his political position, while the latter no doubt noted the irony of his own, that the very bill which had sank his previous government now looked certain to pass under the opposition. It was an observation which soon rang true. A massive demonstration in Hyde Park was planned for early May 1867, but conservative protest and pressure threatened to put an end to it before it got off the ground. The government declared the great meeting illegal, but the organisers of the League in turn declared this ban illegal and eventually won out by weight of opinion. Reformist media pamphlets and John Bright's organ, Morning Star, attacked the government for daring to halt their reformist progress. The demonstration went ahead regardless on the 6th of May, 1867, with over 200,000 people attending and with 10 platforms across the length of Hyde Park, giving speakers a basis to advocate for reform on an even grander level than before. Government opposition began to crumble. Disraeli attempted to present the reformed bill to Parliament, only to face an empowered Gladstone, who argued that it still did not go far enough, 
only to then defeat Gladstone in a vote aimed at defeating this, now the third reform bill. With this mini-victory, insofar as it proved that Gladstone still couldn't rely on his Liberals to support him as one, Disraeli then made the strange decision to make the bill even more radical. Some historians assert that Disraeli further radicalised the bill to break out of his tough position, and because Gladstone would take him on again in the near future with less positive results. Others claim that Disraeli framed the changes to the bill to his colleagues as a chance to stick it to the Liberals. What would become of the Liberal Party, Disraeli would have argued, if the Conservatives passed the most liberal, reform-minded bill of all? Perhaps it would entice some radicals out from the cold, perhaps it would bring some of the working classes over to the Conservative side, perhaps it would even lead to a crisis of identity within the Liberal Party, since it was the Conservatives who were now pushing through the reforms. It was certainly true that the Liberals had never promised electoral reform, but as much as they had never promised it, MPs within their midst had sought passionately to achieve it. How would these MPs look if their Conservative political rivals, associated as they were with the high Tory values of maintaining the status quo and resisting change at all cost, were able to do their job better than they could? It was, as you can see, a strange argument. In my opinion, Disraeli assigned to the Liberal Party responsibilities in his own mind, which they had never really claimed to have, at least not as one. At the same time, he also expected too much of the electorate if he believed that the new workers would suddenly associate his party with one of reform and as a friend to the common man, simply because of one bill. Disraeli had at least proved to his colleagues that he could snipe at the troubled liberal ranks when need be, and that he was capable of poaching them for his own ends when trouble in the liberal camp flared up. The culmination of this poaching, a conservative, Abdullamite coalition, continued to evade him, but the significance of their defection and loose alliance he had with them in Parliament still served as great food for thought for Gladstone and his allies. Disraeli was definitely craftier and more capable than they had expected. Gladstone must have been happy with how things had turned out though. Despite the fracturing of the Liberals, they continued to hold mostly together, and Disraeli had passed a bill in the end which bordered on radicalism defined, at least by the standards of the day. When the reform bill was passed in late summer 1867, it represented the high point of successful political agitation in Britain. Never before had a movement made up of mostly working-class intellectuals and writers achieved so much. When it had combined its resources with the reform union, that itself was mostly led by middle-class businessmen and thinkers, the Conservatives faced a unique two-headed beast that they had never seen before and did not know how to defeat. The incredible symbolism of the Reform League defying the wordings of the government and assembling in Hyde Park in May 1867, not to mention virtually calling that same government out over its attempts to ban freedom of expression in a public place, were groundbreaking. They were reflective of a movement that encapsulated the worst fears of those that inhabited the highest offices of government in the Conservative, as well as we saw in the Liberal parties. It was also highly symbolic that these same masses would be supported and so greatly aided by their political contacts, some of whom, like John Bright, actively increased their representation and profile across the country because of their actions. The spark that Gladstone had helped light during his old speaking tours had now set him on fire too, but for the foreseeable future he would place further electoral reform 
lowered down his agenda. If these past few years had taught him anything, it was how fragile his party was. He had to cement his loyalties first before making another significant move. The idea that the uncontrollable, unwashed, uneducated, undesirable working classes would now be entitled to have a say was one thing. The fact that these same individuals had actually campaigned alongside so many other people to acquire such entitlements was another. It did not bode well for the future. If the people were capable of organising and achieving such successes, where would it end? In total universal suffrage? For the moment, what it meant was the political system facing some hard truths. Above all, the fact that from now on, statesmen in their grand manor houses would no longer be able to buy favour, treat politics as a dynasty, or rely on the corruption of their old constituencies to remain in office. They would have to earn their votes. For the most part, they would actually have to visit their constituency and appreciate the concerns of the people that lived there. Critically, the Reform Bill injected some much-needed accountability into British politics. MPs would have to do something for the new round of voters to consider voting for them. They could no longer expect a win simply because of name value, or from less savoury means. It wasn't a perfect system, of course. Some badly needed changes still had yet to occur, and millions of men remained without the vote, but it was a definite step in the right direction. Britain would have to wait until 1884 before another reform bill would fix the chasm between population and voter, but for the moment the reform agitation mostly died down. The most radical of liberals had been convinced that they could make the system change, while those that had rebelled against liberal authority appreciated how important their influence had been in the general scheme of things. The taboo over breaking liberal rank on a wide scale had been broken. Although it was the second experience Gladstone had of a great fracturing of a party he knew, the previous one during Peel's ministry in the late 1840s, which spat him out of the Tory party, it would not be the last. Gladstone was also faced with the prospect of seeing his rival Disraeli bask in his own glory. Though the reform bill that he had not wanted had passed, before the new parliamentary session could begin in the new year, Lord Derby resigned due to ill health which meant that, from February 1868, Benjamin Disraeli was the Prime Minister of Britain, and his golden life had finally come to pass. While he waited with a somewhat positive spring in his step for the effects of the new reform bill to be felt, and the new election to materialise at the end of the year, Disraeli sought to leave his own mark on the office that he had for so long coveted. What is interesting about the rivalry between Gladstone and Disraeli is that both experienced reaching the top of the mountain, I have reached the top of the greasy pole, as Disraeli put it, at close to the same time. Both men inherited the office of Prime Minister or a leader of their party because of the resignation of their party's stalwart leader, Lord Derby for Disraeli, John Russell for Gladstone. The fact that both would now lead their respective party signified that an old era had ended and a new begun. It was to be the reforming Gladstone, supposedly growing more radical by the day and raising the eyebrows of his less certain colleagues, at the helm of the Liberal Party, while the Conservative Disraeli had undoubtedly proved his mettle in the debates around reform. As this episode has hopefully shown, the whole issue was a minefield which only grew more and more dangerous, and Disraeli did do remarkably well not to suffer greater political wounds from it, as Gladstone very nearly did. 
By splitting the Liberals and leading his own party through the reformist morass, he had also proven his ability to perceive weakness in the House of Commons, which was a critical asset for any statesman to possess in the era as well. Gladstone would have to be remarkably wary of the former Abdullamite turncoats were he ever to serve with them again in office. Perhaps he would even steer clear of any reform bills in the future owing to their toxic potential. There was no reason, Benjamin Disraeli believed, why the Conservative performance at the polls in the winter of late 1868 would be anything other than impressive. The newly enfranchised voters owed him and his party. Surely they would repay the favour. However, if Disraeli hoped that by improving upon the Gladstone-Russell bill and pushing it through with even greater implications for the British electorate, that he would be hailed by the working classes as their champion and thanked by them with a plethora of votes and his first majority government, then he was to be sorely disappointed. The difference a year made was immense. When Gladstone had first presented the bill in spring 1866, he had insisted that it would empower a few working class voters for a total increase to the electorate of about 400,000. By the time the bill had endured all the politicking of the previous months and was finally passed in the summer of 1867, it was pegged to multiply the voter pool by two. Britain would go from one million male voters to almost two million. While the qualifications and long-corrupted so-called rotten boroughs were also dealt with far more effectively too. Disraeli, by doing this, had handed voting rights to far more people than anyone had ever imagined he would. The Reform League celebrated their greatest triumph, while Disraeli waited for the next general election in November of 1868 to vindicate the grand claims he had made to his colleagues. Though he had only assumed the premiership for the first time in February 1868, and though he still relied upon the divisions of his opponents in a minority conservative government, Disraeli was nonetheless confident that the impact of what he had helped push through the previous summer would spur him on to an even longer ministry, accompanied by the satisfaction of a majority that he had always craved. Had he properly read the signs, he surely would not have expected as much. With their electoral feuding at an end following the bill's passing, the Abdullamites largely returned to the Liberal Party, following months of glaring at each other across the House of Commons. Ill will was said to be a thing of the past, and new positions were even promised in the new government to the likes of Robert Lowe if Gladstone, now leader of the party, could win. With the Liberals refuelled by the return of their former turncoats, Disraeli lost a major source of his power. It was to get worse, though. The working classes he had enfranchised did not believe Disraeli's protestations about representing their interests best. They remained almost to a man indebted to the radical MPs and liberal ideals that had given them the chance to speak in the first place, and so they would give their blessing to Gladstone again as well. By the time the election had ended, Disraeli was forced to admit defeat. Gladstone began his first ever premiership, energised with a liberal majority of over 100 in the Commons, in early December 1868. No doubt it was a bitter pill for Disraeli to swallow, not only had his first premiership come to such an abrupt end after only tasting power for a short time, but he had also been fundamentally wrong about the nature of public opinion. Perhaps the worst blow of all, though, was in the fact that his oldest rival, William Gladstone, was now Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Though to Disraeli this represented the worst possible outcome, it would prove in retrospect to be merely 
another chapter in the saga of their incredible rivalry. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.